Hi, I'm Prashant Ranganathan. I'm the founder and CEO of PayU Finance, based out of India. And I'm really excited to be speaking to you all this morning. Ek minute, ruk jao. Ready hone do. Chalo. Ye kar lete hain. This could be a great intro. There is a long history going all the way back to Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi of Indians who are settled abroad deciding to come back to India to solve Indian problems. But each such story follows a unique path, and in this episode, Akshaytath talks to Prashant Ranganathan about building one of India's leading lending fintech startups. Prashant is a Stanford-educated techie who spent time in the epicenter of the startup world with some of its most important companies and people. After a successful leadership journey at PayPal, he decided to build a fintech startup in India, which possibly became the most testing period of his life. But like all good tests, it taught him many lessons. Listen on to Prashant's fascinating story of building PaySense, which is now PayU Credit. Yeah, it's Stanford. It's one of the first places I've ever been where if you graduated, you were a failure, right? The expectation of university is that you stop out or you drop out to start something before you graduate, right? That is the basic expectation. Uh, it's probably the unwritten expectation, but that is the expectation. So, and so I would see people constantly, I mean, this is the time where like you would, you would see the, the Google guys, the Larry's and the Sergey's coming back. They were still coming back to graduate, graduate uh, parties and stuff like that. And it was just cool. Like you would see Zuck come on campus and talk to, talk to us. But because at that time, these guys were not that big. Like this was like 2004. It was still quite, I mean, yeah, Google was quite large, but still very early days compared to where they are today, right? So you can see, and that's when I also met Mark and Reese. And Mark was, uh, of course, he's a frequent campus and uh, one of the, through a friend, I met him and he was like, hey, I'm doing like an apprenticeship program. Maybe you should consider it. And and I and I looked at that program. I was like, oh, it's kind of cool. I spent time with Mark, work on some interesting stuff. And Mark very early on was like, hey, like you don't go from Stanford and then go back to your corporate job. Right. You don't go back and say, oh, I'm going to work on developer tools for Microsoft. He's like, enterprise is dead. Work on consumer stuff. The web is it. And even back then, he was like, the web will transform into portable, you know, mobile applications. Look out for that. Right. So I actually went from graduating bioinformatics to becoming an apprentice for Mark. And for me, the <laughs> again, the conversation with my parents was really hard because I went from whatever, like making a few hundred thousand dollars at that time at Microsoft to making $3,000 as a stipend I would mark uh, a month. So it was, and, and I had a, and picked up a graduate degree along the way, right? So you think that every time you pick up a degree, you pick up like a little bit more on the, on the comp front. I actually went like massively the other way. Um, but from an experience standpoint, I always knew that this was not the be all end all. I wasn't going to be Mark's apprentice for 40 years, right? I just knew that this would be the place I would meet the people I wanted to meet, work, pick up technologies that I wanted to pick up, learn something that I want. And that's uh, what happened. In six months, I met uh, Nikhil Singhal, uh, who was just consulting with them, helping helping Mark and and, and the team. At the, the company that I was I was a part of was called Ling, N-I-N-G. And, uh, yeah. and then I went off and started my first company with Nikhil. So uh, with Mark, you were like, like an investment analyst kind of thing, like? No, 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 no. So Mark had, uh, Mark and this lady, Gina BMK, had uh, set up a social web app 
type of a company, right? They were saying Facebook is the is the owner of the graph, like the social graph, and there will be companies that will build social apps, right? And uh, initially, their thinking was we will. Initially, their thinking was we will build our own social network, like bring your own social network to this platform, right? Called Name. Like I would say, hey, I want to build a social calendar, right? So today, calendar is very personal, but I build a social calendar where I would share my calendar with Akshay and my wife and four other people, and people would put stuff and play dates could be organized and whatnot, right? That was the concept. So I was embedded in that company to build. So they were building the core infrastructure and I was building the applications, the reference apps to showcase the power of the underlying platform, right? And that was fun because I'd never done anything in consumer. I'd never done anything with web programming. And so that was fun for me. And part of that was I also got to spend some time with Mark and just to get, just to kind of dig into his own brain and see how he thought about things. And for me, it was radical, right? Like it was very different than a very structured, linear way of thinking about things. He would always talk about stuff that's going to happen in five years or 10 years and how to prepare for that. And this is the whole like skate to where that you think the fuck is going to be, not not where it's at. And so that, that was constantly reinforced. That plus the fact that you don't graduate Stanford to go back to a, a corporate job or you're already a failure because you graduated Stanford and I compounded towards you know, my first first startup. So what did you start with Nikhil? So Nikhil was a seasoned entrepreneur. He, he built a company called Casa and System Pass and sold it. And again, I'm, I'm going to share this part because I think it's important for people to, to understand. I was always very sure that he was going to start something and it didn't matter to him what it was going to be, right? It was very vague and they were like, hey, we're going to do something with like a telephony and it's going to be like a phone IVR based thing. The initial concept was that they would do like like a podcast on the on the phone. And and he was like, dude, you should come and be my my product manager, like head of my, head of my product manager, be on the founding team, etc. And in the time that my H1B got transferred from where I was onto this company, because they had to get capitalized, etc. So they'd raised money and they were further along. And my what I thought I was going to get in terms of shares and what I got ultimately were quite different. But, but that's besides the point, because for me, what was great at like 26 or 27 at this time was the experience that I was going to have as like a head of product you know, for a new nascent company that had no product market fit and an empty canvas to go and uh, and play out. He was very supportive. Of course, I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I was razor focused on helping this company get product market fit. So the company ultimately pivoted from podcast on the phone to a group voice messaging company. And I pushed it down that path. I said, hey, look, Twitter is not authentic. When you get a message on Twitter from the real Donald Trump or Akon or, or Rihanna, how do you know it's them typing versus it's one of their publicists typing, right? Um, but voice is very real. Voice is very authentic. What if you could build a system where Chris Brown could record a message and hit broadcast and it would go to like a million fans who would kind of whose phones would like message or ring and they would listen to it. They could respond. And when they responded, all that audio would go back and show up on his MySpace or wherever he wanted to put our widget. That's what that company became. It became like a social voice communication, group voice communication company. There was something similar in this part of the world called Bubbly. I don't think where, I don't know where it went. But ultimately, say now, the company that we had formed uh, and built got sold to Google. I didn't end up going to Google at that time. All of them seen later again for the second time. But that's where, that's where, that's where the company ended up. For me, I think I was like, man, 
I, I, I saw the, the return on investment, right? Like they had started this three months prior. Yeah, I was there every step of the way, all the way through. I drove the quote unquote initial product market fit and everything else. But the return for them was like much, much, much larger than what it was being. But for me, what it did is it set me on a certain path, right? So that I was not upset that there was tens of millions of dollars between us. For me, what it, what it meant is now using that platform was time for me to go start again. So I actually then uh, stepped out and I was doing some consulting which then resulted in my second startup. So like uh, you had enough cash from that exit to Google to like fund your next venture? Like was it substantial yeah. enough? Like yeah, yes and no. So yes, there was enough. And, and, but you know, as I was, but I was just kind of picked up a consulting gig. I didn't want to kind of just take all my money, put it into something. I, I picked up a consulting gig because I wanted a rolling start. I wanted to work with a company, figure out the problems that they were facing and kind of solve for them. My ambition wasn't that big at the time. I was like, okay, I can just build something for these guys and sell it back to them. Unfortunately, they didn't want to buy what? What, what was that gig like? Yeah, so it was a company called Kuova, and they were in the IP IP location space, like geo IP location space. So the what I was noticing is that they were quick question. Yeah. What is geo IP location? Yeah, like the uh, geo location, like what uh, Uber uses, like exactly. So every computer, every device has an IP address, right? Like it's a location. Uh, it's a it's a it's it it's the endpoint, right? So. What the technology we had built would help people say, given an IP address, they could say where it is, right? So if I took your IP address right now, I should be able to say, well, you're somewhere near Tokyo, Japan, right? Because that IP address, that block was assigned to a carrier in Japan and they have sub blocks and everyone has a certain structure and uh, that's how it got uh, pinpointed. And, and basically there's a lot of value in that because I can, if I'm Netflix, I can say, okay, this person's coming from Japan applied Japan DRM, right? Like only allowing them to see content that's licensed for Japan. Or if you're a gambling, you maybe you don't want people from certain countries because they're not legally allowed to gamble, right? Or, or whatever. It's, there could be various restrictions placed in terms of content, in terms of access. What I realized when I was, and I was working on like how to just enhance their algorithms, technologies to make it big better. Again, this comes back to my big data, you know, bioinformatics past, because I had worked on a lot of these algorithms before, and I knew how to apply it for this problem. It's not biology, but it's very, very, very large amounts of data that I could crunch and process to do something, right? So that's where I started using it. And while I was doing it, I would go on these sales calls with, with the sales guy. Just I was just a consultant, and I would just go, and what I would hear is these companies were actually buying this raw like database data from us. And then they were building all this logic on top of it to, you know, detect where someone was coming from and apply all those rules. And so what I wanted to quickly build that and when I, what I was talking to the CEO about is, hey, like, why don't I build an application with my own money, with my own time, I'll build an application, which will A, allow the, the companies that you're selling to the ability to, to, to detect if someone is coming through a proxy, right? You're not spoofing your IP address or, um, yeah, or let me build some technology that would like give you a strong device fingerprint. Or in the case of like mobile payments, maybe I can help you guys like build something that would like give you like 
like a lot, lot, lot of security related signals, right? Like, so you can process mobile things, build all. And she was quite supportive and, and I built all this, but just when I had built everything, right? I took me like eight months or me to build all this. And I had hired a couple of consultants, spent a lot of my own time, built all this. Just when I was ready, they went through an acquisition, they went through an acquisition, right? And to then my work became very second order of business, right? So then here I was, I had spent all this money, spent all this time building all this stuff and nothing was going to come off it. So I decided I am just going to spin it into a company, right? So I was going to go, I was like, okay, well, I can license their data and I can take all my technology. I'll sell it. Right. So that was actually the birth of the second company. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it on my own because the person I built it for is no position to buy it. And I was frankly going to sell it to them for, I think like a couple of hundred thousand dollars, if that. Uh, but what ended up happening is I ended up saying, okay, no, I'm going to build my own and started looking to raise capital. As I was looking to raise capital, I ran into the guys at PayPal. They were like, hey, we don't like all the other stuff you did, but this mobile payment security stuff that you've built here is really interesting. Can you come back and tell us more? So I, over like a three-day period, changed the entire pitch to make it only about mobile payment security, how this was the best way of detecting proxies, how this was the best way of device fingerprinting how this was the best way of picking up mobile fraud, built out an entire application suite on top of it, went back and pitched there. And I said, hey, I'm looking to raise a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And they were like, this stuff is so cool and so important and so integral in what we do is that we don't want to fund you and have you grow, sell it to five other people. We want all this for ourselves. And all of a sudden the table changed, right? And I was like, oh, well, I'm not really selling. The same stuff I was going to sell for 300,000 like a month ago, right? Seven I mean, when I sell, I, I intend to build it. And, um, and so then I'm like, well, if there's one buyer for this, let me go talk to Visa. Let me go talk to Google. Let me so I started those conversations. And again, the word went back to PayPal that, hey, this guy is looking to sell. And then they came back with an offer I just could not refuse. And it was not a $300,000 offer. I, it was a game changer. And all of a sudden, like... L like a complete buyout or like investment? Buyout. They came back and said, hey, it's a complete buyout and you can build it here. And so then that's how I ended up at PayPal. It's a, it was complete buyout. It was my first full acquisition. I owned at that point 99.8% of the company. <laughs> I'd not really raised any money. But, you know, it, out of those conversations were dragging on, this is where I think my wife plays a big role. I got married and I'd already spent a lot of the say now money and whatnot. And so we, we were getting married. And I was like, I remember talking to my father-in-law, who's a South Indian man, right? Who worked for Exxon Mobil all his life. He's like, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm an entrepreneur. And I think he must have like said, this guy is either, either going to make it or he's going to be a complete flunky. But my, my daughter is excited to marry this dude. Because for him, he didn't really understand what an entrepreneur was. Like, what is this concept of an entrepreneur? Is, this, is it another word for unemployed? Um, and it perhaps was for him, right? And so he, he, I remember him asking me a lot of questions about like, but I think ultimately he came back to, okay, he has an engineering degree, he went to Stanford, like must be something going for him. Don't understand this entrepreneur bit, but fine, he can, they can get married. So we got married and I remember through our, we get all these like check, donate, check like gifts. I had to use all that money to meet payroll. She had her first WTF moment. I was like, hey, I have a deal kind of in the works. It's not, not sure what's going to happen. But I need to pay these guys in the meantime. Um, going to spend this money. So she was quite happy. Or she, I think, I think in hindsight, she tells me she was kind of happy to fund that. But yeah, and then the PayPal deal happened. And then, um, 
and then as a paper yeah, yeah. so how long did you spend at paper as there for the uh, requisite four years of uh, golden handcuffs so i spent uh, two years in uh, the bay area i worked as the building that product like by when like did you build and then did you commercialize like what all did you yeah so I remember a lot of the technology that we had built, we had built with a few consultants, right? We didn't have anyone full time. So I basically took all those consultants and the technology and we sold it to PayPal, right? So we went to PayPal and the we spent the first year and a half rebuilding their entire mobile payment uh, risk engine, right? So we used our technology, plugged it into their core. Of course, their scale was much bigger than ours, but the, the genesis, the technology was that. That's when I also started working on graph-related problems, right? So I basically said, hey, when you're detecting fraud, it's less important to know everything about Akshay. It's more important to know who Akshay is connected to and what is the possibility of money transfer between Akshay and, and Anup and, or Akshay, Sabita and whatnot, right? So I started working on these connected notes like the world cannot be looked at discrete individuals the world is connected right so started working on the graph stuff then the thesis here is that if you are doing fraud then chances are that people in your network will also be involved like like that was why you were looking at so it's quite quite simple right so paypal is the business of sending and receiving money right um often the problem is you're sending money to someone you don't know Right. Or because you're, you're not actually sending the money, someone else is up remote operating your account. Right. Um, so someone takes over Akshay's account and sends money to, uh, Yuko. And Akshay doesn't know anything about Yuko or who Yuko is and whatnot. Right. The money moved. Now, if you really knew Akshay's network and the network's network, then you could actually detect if there is a plausible chance of Akshay sending money to Yuko. And if there was, then you would not block that transaction. If there wasn't, then you shouldn't block that transaction. And the other thing is, we would look at a transaction between, say, someone in San Francisco and someone in Austin. And that looks fairly normal, fairly obvious like within the U.S. But what you would actually see, and this is where my, my proxy piercing technology would play in, is like, well, actually, the actual machine that is accessing this computer in Austin and mimicking like it's coming from Austin is actually in Vietnam. Right. And and that the, the the people connected upstream and downstream of that account of Vietnam, there have been other compromises. Right. So this money movement is in a large mesh of like a money movement that is not uh, kosher. Right. So when we start to zoom out, that transaction between San Francisco and Austin starts to look not so you you can't keep zooming out. If you zoom out too far, then you have so much data and you can't process the transaction. So there's all these algorithms about like how far do you zoom out and how deep do you go and how do you do it in real time so you can actually approve the transaction. And that's that's all science and that's all like IP and that's all cool stuff. Again, goes back to my bioinformatics days. Because bioinformatics, like this is how you would you would not be able to process all the data, but you need to process enough data to get the right level of kind of depth and breadth to analyze your sample. So again, like it's very different space, very similar thinking. So the graph and connected like clustering algorithms are very similar to what I studied and practiced in my bioinformatics days. Yeah, uh, amazing how the dots connected. Huh? Connects backwards, right? It never connects forward. <laughs> and I'll tell you more, this dot keeps connecting over and over again. It's kind of a pattern in my life. So in that, that piece of work, 
actually brought down the, when I, when I joined PayPal, I think they were running at about 6% loss rates on mobile transactions, brought it down to like 22 bits. So 0.22. So just by using this without any more degradation of, you know, performance or quality, we were able to cut the losses, which was, which was great. Then I worked on credit at PayPal. They were like, hey, you seem to be able to get shit done here really quickly. Why don't you, why don't you work on, like, we want to do credit. So my boss had built a company called Build Me Later and sold it to PayPal. So I started working on the integration of Build Me Later and PayPal. Uh, it was like a BNPL product. Exactly. Back in, I mean, these guys sold it for like a billion and a half in 2009, right? So... Um, and here we are in 2022, still figuring it out. And yeah, so that's, so I worked on that and it was, it was a great experience. Again, had nothing to do what I thought I was going to be able to use for, but you know, again, four years later, it became a, became a big deal. So when you were doing that BNPL product within PayPal, it was essentially like figuring out the credit risk underwriting part of it, like how to do that. Just, and just, yeah, so I think uh, Bill Me Later had already figured out most of that stuff, but just how do you make it work inside a PayPal wallet, right? Like that was it. That was just like an in a glorified integration specialist, right? But when you're doing the integration, you also, the curious mind, you end up learning a lot about it, right? And again, I think this goes back to just a poor education system that I was a part of. Because when you have a poor education system, it, you end up being more curious because you have to figure it out for yourself. Like you weren't taught properly and there's like 80 people in your classroom or something. And so you just become a curious mind. And so I just became very curious. And uh, there were a lot of people to just learn from. No one was a teacher, but there's a lot of people to learn from. Uh, so I just kind of learned all the the isms of credit to them. And, and man, like for me, I think I remember this quite clearly. My first week in PayPal, I, I was, I had a skip level, right? Like basically my manager's manager, right? Basically sat me down and he's like, Hey, okay. So two years from now, uh, what do you see yourself doing in risk? And I was like, Gary, with all due respect in two years from now, I actually don't see myself in risk. I see myself in product and I don't even see myself in the U S I see myself in uh, Southeast Asia. I want to run an emerging market in magic, dude, magic, just magic. And how the power of the subconscious works two years later. I was on an expat assignment in product uh, in Singapore. So as part of PayPal. So for me, it was like, well, I wanted to, I, I knew I had to be there for four years at least to have my earn out. And I also wanted to just get an expat assignment under my belt. So I wanted to be a part of that experience. So yeah, that's happened. But why did you not want to stay on in the US? Uh, I Like you eventually came back to India. So like why? And was your wife supportive of this? Yeah. So, so my wife, actually, she was born and brought up in the U.S. She's Indian, but she was born and brought up in the U.S. Um, very familiar with the American way of life. Very unfamiliar, uh, other than the periodic summers that all uh, American Gacy kids come and spend in India. Other than that, she had no experience of India, right? So I, I just thought in 2009, 2010, that the big waves of the U.S. Um, had come and gone. And that these waves would then kind of like come in the following two years, three years, five years in India and in other, in other emerging markets, right? And that's what we're seeing now, right? To be honest, like India is super hot and has been for the last three, four years. So in some ways, kind of called it, right? And you want to, you, you can't jump in when the wave's already rising. You want to kind of catch the wave as it's rising. So jumping in at 2015, was like the most, most precisely timed uh, decision, if you may. So as I was finishing up my four years at PayPal, that was 2015, we had two choices. One was head back to the US 
and, or head or head further further east, if you may. We at that time were going through some personal stuff, which we were kind of like just kind of like a shock in the family, which was holding us back from like heading back to the U.S. Right? We we had planned for a certain outcome, it didn't work out. So then we were like, okay, fine. If that's not where we're going, then I was just talking to my wife and I said, hey, I have this opportunity. We're already here. We've already experienced Asia light. So let's go Asia deep. And to be honest. My, the way I had sold it to her, and this is again like how how one thinks and how one you know experiences life. I said, look, in PayPal in in Southeast in 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 Singapore, we're sitting on some nine billion dollars of right profits. We I don't think they're gonna take it back to the U.S. and pay taxes and repatriate and all this stuff. So my sense is they're gonna have to spend it here in the region, and there's no good company to buy for PayPal. So why don't, and they really want to enter India. They really want to make a big splash in India. So why don't we, why don't we go build something in India? A year or two later, PayPal's going to come. They're going to buy it. And I was like, that makes so much sense. They have the money. Yeah. They have the money. They have the appetite for the market. I can build something. I know all the people who I'd be dealing with on the other side. Could just be a quick two-year stint and then we can do whatever we want. She was like, okay, makes sense. Makes sense. Let's do it. Of course, PayPal never came to India in a meaningful way. I kept getting distracted in the US and the European frontiers. Meanwhile, I kept building. We raised capital and it became plan B, right? PayPal didn't come, but PayU was here in India. And uh, for me, we started building a good relationship with them and brought them on the capital. Okay, but before you, before you come to that PayU, first, I want to understand, like, when you quit PayPal, uh, what was your thesis that this is what I'll build in India? My thesis was payments in India was broken, right? Like even for like a 20 rupee transaction, you had to put in your card and then you get an OTP. And if you were traveling, you would never get that OTP. It was painful, painful, painful. And so I was like, well, we have to be able to decouple purchase from payment, right? And then you decouple purchase from payment, you get some magic. And what I've also seen is that the e-tail growth in India in 2014-15 was just going up, right? This is like the time of Flipkart and Amazon was coming in and like Aadhaar and this, that. Everyone was like buzzing about India. And I was like, man, e-tail growth is a precursor to payments growth, right? And I wanted to be part of the payments growth. I saw the e-tail growth and I was like, this is the time to get into payments. And in the US, it played out very differently because the e-tail guys never wanted to really do payments, right? They were willing to partner and kind of invest and whatnot. But in India, it seems different because the e-tail guys, whether it was a Book My Show or a Fossils or a, or an Amazon or Flipkart, they were all like, hey, we have our own fintech team. Oh, you want to buy an later? They also need buy an later. Or oh, you want to do this? Oh, we can do this. So it, it was very hard, like, because I felt like half the time I was just educating them on how to do what I wanted to do, right? And so it was just a bit of that trick and that balance. But the thesis was very simple. Like, e-tail is booming, payments will boom, e-payments will boom. Decouple purchase from payment, because that's when you unlock massive consumer traction and the lot more trust comes into the system but more self the consumer experience basically goes up a lot if uh, they don't have to worry about putting in an otp and all of that in the middle of uh... exactly and and then the and the more selfish thesis was paypal will come it's imminent and that when they come uh, we can just package to sell i, I was thinking i will I was, only, I was only thinking about being in India 2015, 2016, to be completely frank. Like, tell me about that, like, from that idea, how you actually got it off the ground. Because, I mean, fintech is a regulated space. You didn't have much idea about how to do it in India. This was a 
B2B business or was it B2C, you would essentially tie up with the Book My Show and such and offer it to their consumers, right? So, I mean, there were a lot of buy-ins you had to secure yeah. to really launch this. So, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so, yeah, this part of the journey is the is like a, is a tricky one, right? So, first of all, I initially thought I would set up in Singapore. In fact, the company is headquartered in Singapore. I was already there. I was going to set up in Singapore. The move to India was like a very, was not even on the picture, or not even in the in the consideration. It was just the market to enter, right? And I I was very clear about what I wanted to do. I wanted to build an experience where a consumer didn't have to do much, right? They were pre-approved based on some signals, and they would just kind of flow through a transaction, and then they would come back and pay up whenever they needed to, right? That was that was the basic, and I'd built a nice little kind of clickable prototype and I showed it around and I talked to people in the, in the ecosystem and I had a fair sense of like what I was getting into, but I didn't have really that much of a sense of like what this was going to be about. I also knew that this was going to be a big deal. Like if someone did it right, it was going to be a big deal. And so first I went and pitched it to a BC, few BCs, right? And who might say nowadays, I had met the late Mr. Naren, Naren Gupta who was the founder of Nexus. And and his counsel to me was, hey, look, India is a great place, phenomenal opportunities, but it requires the entrepreneur to be on the ground. You can't do this from Singapore. Why don't you go talk to my team in India? So I was like, I'm going to plan a trip to India. This was in the US. I'm going to plan a trip to India. So I went to India. I met with Sequoia. I met with Matrix. I met with Nexus. And I met with a couple other funds. I forget the names now. And basically, again and again, I kept showing them this prototype. And I said, this is what I'm going to build. Guys, this is what's going to happen. Like this, you see this transaction on book metro, this is how it's going to be. And they were like, look, we, it's really amazing like what you're thinking, but it's really hard. Is this even possible? Like, are you going to be able to pull this up? And I was like, yeah, second time entrepreneur. I have done something like this in PayPal. But they were all like, dude, while you're brown and you're Indian, you're quite sure right? Like, you're not from here. You will not be, you will not be able to cut it. Like, to be honest, like that, that was the biggest risk, right? They were like, they would ask me about like my wife and like how she was thinking about India and like, because I think for them all, for all of them, the the biggest concern was, you know, the, at that time there was this wave of like, kind of like high, high profile folks that had moved from the US to India and then spun out. Right. Like they, they just could not hack it and they left and they went back. And so for them, the, the biggest concern was, well, we, we can't, we can't have this happen. Right. Or not after we make an investment. So, and so that got through that. And Nexus was like, look, if you're willing to commit to move to India, then we can write you a check. So very quickly with just that prototype, no company formed at the state. They were willing to write a check. So then I went back to Singapore, formed the company. Still, my thinking was I need like someone who could help me operate in India. And that's where like just through social connect this, I met this extremely wonderful lady called never knew her, but met her and she'd been in the US, moved back, had started a company had not, had not worked out. And so she was in between gigs that she was looking to. And so for me, I was like, okay, can, can we partner up? And uh, the guy have very little India context. You, you're, you keep India context. My sense was. I would, again, build for a couple of years with her in India, and then I would go back to Singapore, and then she would keep working, right? And then I was thinking, oh, we can go replicate this model in Vietnam and Indonesia and other markets, and that's what I would. And, but the struggle when we got started was so real, right? So we, on one end, we were 
building this technology in which we knew how to do. We were looking to do pilots with Book My Show and Fasos and I think Tom Riddles and a few others because we all, all we wanted to do is just don't buy now, pay later. Had not quite figured out the economics of how this business worked. Now that I sit like in a very different credit position, I would like, first thing I'd say is that business is unviable, right? Like there's no point in business. But at that time, it was just like, just wanted to get the Book My Show deal going. And so from June till December, all I did was try to crack Book My Show. Spent all my time working with the founder, working with other people. And we just kept getting strung along. And like you were saying, B2B to C is a very, very, very painful, very, very, very risky playbook, right? There is a company called Simple. They have cracked it. More power to Nitya and, and his team. But I was not able to do it. So come December, I remember having a, a glass of whiskey in my hand and Siley and a couple others in the room. And we were like, dudes, we have nothing to show, right? We have a pseudo partnership that's kind of working. They've given us some data. This data doesn't make any sense because it wasn't captured in the right way. And we were just like. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. As in, you couldn't uh, underwrite using that data. Yeah, the data was just like a bunch of cookies, right? It wasn't actually identifying a person. It was just identifying a cookie and then people keep blowing up cookies. And if you could come from browser one, browser two and, and mobile mobile three, I'd have three different cookies on the same person. And so it was very like fragmented, very poorly collected data. So we could not make, make much sense. And they didn't have a concept of a user. They didn't care because for them, all they were doing is selling a movie ticket. They didn't care about like a user and a profile and a wallet and money or any other stuff, right? All that stuff was coming. And so this was our like come to Jesus moment, right? Like, like holy shit, how are we going to make it? And just then Siley, more power to her, suggested that we go talk to uh, Nirmal Jain at IIFL. And IIFL wanted to do retail personal loans and wanted to do it in a digital way, but just didn't have the, the DNA to do it. Now, for me, that's not what I wanted to do, right? But I knew that to demonstrate economics in six to nine months from where I was, I would need to make that change at that point, right? And if I even waited or dilly-dallied for another month, it, that, that opportunity, that window would be gone because our runway would end and we would just not, would not have any traction. So middle of December, we said, we'll build an app. It'll be for personal loans. We'll go and we will kind of generate loans or leads for IFL. And that's how we pivoted. We pivoted and suddenly like- so This is like a pure consumer business, like- Pure consumer, direct to consumer. Uh, and you're probably wondering how we thought we would go and acquire customers. Yes, we did a little bit of Facebook, but man, I had gone and stood in tech parks, right? Where people come out for lunch and, and I was like, phone pay loan, phone pay loan, phone pay loan, phone pay loan. Just like people are selling. Uh, and like, this is, this, after like telling you about my life for the last whatever hour and a half, this is the moment, the absolute pits of my life. There's a guy standing next to me with a Vodafone 4G SIM card, right? He's selling 4G SIM cards. And I'm standing next to him trying to sell a bloody loan pay phone, right? Uh, or phone pay loan. Uh, and there's a line of people standing on at his counter. <laughs> and nobody wants to stop. Anyway. 
And yeah. people in the tech car hounding people going in and out of their lunch breaks, trying to get them to take a loan. And uh, yeah, this is this is this is what falling from stars feels like. But you know, jokes apart, I did that for a week. Of course, the team did that as well with me. And uh, we slowly got our mojo. We slowly try to figure out like, hey, what works and what doesn't work. And th there is a big, big credit need in the market. It's just the right pitch, or the right, or the right value prop, the right way. And we slowly got going. I remember when we celebrated doing like, I think a hundred loans in a month. Right now, I think I do like 350,000 loans a month. It's like, and a hundred, man, it was so hard, so hard to do the first hundred. We would have all these manual processes and what was coming from the app and storing in the database was off. And so I manually go and edit it to fix it. Uh, there was a bunch of paper processes where we had to like pair up this like NACH, the NACH form. We bought a cutter, paper cutter, and we'd have someone sitting there cutting the paper. It was brutally manual. You know, fast forward three months from that moment, at least we were fundable, right? I had pulled the company from the jaws of failure because 2016 was brutal in India. 2015 was awesome. 2016 was like, show me the unit economics. Yeah, absolutely. That's when like Snapdeal like had all those fumbles and... Yeah. Snapdeal, housing.com, your tiny owl. There's a whole bunch of companies that went out of business. You know, for me, it was survival, right? And when it comes to survival, I think this is where uh, entrepreneurs really differentiate themselves. You have to make certain calls that you would normally otherwise never make. You would say, this is important. This is critical. This is something I cannot live without. And you basically, everything is obviously important, but you, there are things that you cannot live without. So you just kind of focus, hyper-focus, and you basically uh, put your ego aside, everything aside, and you just focus on survival, and then you make it through. And uh, this is also when you you go through this period where you're like trying to say, man, did I start the right company? Did I start with the right people? Does this have legs, right? And while you're having all those massive self-doubt, you're going out there and telling someone, to bet on you and bet on the company and leave the numbers. And so it's, 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 it's definitely a very tricky, tricky time. I still remember the, I had in series A, I had pitched some 23, 24 investors and had been rejected by all of them because they were just like, oh, it's just not quite there. The economics is just not there. We're not feeling like this is, this is, this is the growth we want to see, et cetera, et cetera. And in the middle of this, I remember, without taking names, my CRO at the time, my chief risk officer, someone who was on the founding team, uh, was based in Singapore. I flew overnight on an airline flight from Bombay to Singapore, of course, economy, and uh, pretty much couldn't sleep because it was brutal jet lag flight. Got to Singapore, and as I walk into the office, my CRO says, I just don't think I can continue to be at this. And I had come to Singapore to raise money, right? From one of my last ditch effort type of investors. And uh, this is what I heard. I was like, holy moly, yeah, like a bat to the head with a walked in, right? So I, I grabbed a cup of coffee and it was very emotional conversation. And basically the person had just made up their mind and it was just very disgruntled about like how we had not made enough progress, right? But for me, we had made a ton of progress. It's just a, the lens or the, the vision uh, was very different. And we had to survive this period to get... Which is also a factor of proximity to action, no? Like you were 
you had that proximity to action. Exactly. So if you sit, if you sit far away, it just looks like nothing's moving. And you wonder like, why can't you guys just go and get this deal signed? Right? We, we, yeah, we could, but it just doesn't work that way. So anyway, so this person quit and I had like 10 minutes to just catch my breath, drink my coffee, get in a, like a, a, a cab and head to, head to the next invest. In the cab ride, the whole time there, I was debating, should I just catch a quick nap because I didn't slept all night? Or should I plan about how I'm going to tell them that they should support this company that was not doing that great and had lost its chief risk officer, like the single most critical role in a credit company, right? So I couldn't come up with anything, couldn't, couldn't take a nap either, get there. And the first thing I opened with is like, hey, look, this is where we are, this is where we're done. By the way, lost quite senior risk officer this morning, but don't worry, I know enough credit risk. I'll handle it until we can find the next person. And this is how I'm thinking about it. Very refreshing conversation because I felt like if I had not been that jet-lagged, I wouldn't have been that honest because I would have been a lot more creative and they would have seen all the bullshit through. <laughs> I was just so tired and I was so like effort types. I just gave them the real, t- and he was like very appreciative. He was like, hey, look, give us a couple of weeks. We understand it's early stage. We we missed it when, when you were first raising uh, your seed, but... We, we want to get in. So we closed that round and that was Jungle Ventures. Massive, uh, massive testament to Amit and kind of really backing the founder, even at a time where it was like completely distressed. So I think it comes down to something very simple, right? Like, and I, and I say this in, in hindsight, this is not about betting the horse. This is about betting the jockey because the horse will go through its periods of life, uh, its success and failures and ups and downs, but the jockeys ultimately carry it. Um, so I think, and there were many who did not bet the horse or bet the wrong jockey. Those are good venture capitalist friends of mine, but I still laugh in their face, right? I tell them that they bet the wrong jockey. So it's, this business is brutal. And you started off saying, hey, it's a regulated space. It's India, you know, came into India not understanding it people it's tough and uh, yeah but i think i think some people just patting myself on the back some people just make it through how much did you raise then from jungle the jungle round was a five million dollar round okay so I, I wanted to understand a few questions on uh, what you had built by the time you raised from jungle like, like what segment were you going after was it for like salaried folks who wanted a loan or was it for people doing business or what like like what was the segment you were talking yeah about? look i think it's even at that point, we were still quite you know, guardrailed by what IFL wanted, right? Like, so they were the ultimate lender. Um, they were very clear about, hey, we want this type of profile, these type of customers, this credit score, and this is this is what we want to price for, right? So we didn't have that much control in terms of like who we were lending to. It was mostly dictated by the IFL credit team. But yeah, so mostly it was salaried, a little bit of self-employed, but not a lot of business lending, right? It's very like individuals for individual purposes. It could be a wedding. It could be like, uh, it could be something, you know, it could be health related. It could be like a home renovation. It could be, it could be like a festival and people wanting to spend on the festival. So just to smoothen out people's cash flow. That's typically was the use case. And the raise from Jungle was just about $5 million. And I think what we said is we would do most of the round and we would leave a little bit open. And uh, the reason I wanted to leave a little bit open is because by this time I understood that to build a credit company or a credit based company, you needed lots of capital 
for a long periods of time, right? You need like deep pocketed, uh, deep pocketed, deeply committed ecosystem players who could keep shuffling cash in the form of raw material uh, to generate a massive yield on the back of it, right? So, and by this time, it was also very clear that PayPal wasn't coming. And I knew, and I think this is the difference between what other friends of mine didn't do and what I did, is I was very early gunning for a strategic. And my and my fellow competition or my competitors were choosing the next venture capitalist. And I was like, venture capitalists eventually are not going to keep pouring more and more money because this is this is a pretty poor free cash flow business. It has great revenue, great margins, but very bad from free cash flow standpoint. So you need to get in bed with the strategic. And at that time there was only one strategic. There was only pay you. They were, and so I wanted to leave a million dollars open in that round with a chance that I can convert Payu. Payu initially said it was too small, too little. But once I raised from John Mill, for some reason the stars aligned and they were happy to put in a million dollars. And yeah. Yeah, okay. Amazing. So what, what, what was the revenue model at that time when Jungle invested? Like, how were you earning? Was it like the spread? Like say IFL takes 16% and you take 8% and consumer pays 24%. Like the, that kind of a deal or was it a per loan, like a lead generation deal? Or- so I think I forget the exact exact makeup, but I think it was one part for the origination and one part we earned through the, through the loan as well. So... Because we were also responsible for helping them collect, they wanted us to have skin in the game in terms of making sure those loans were actually performant and that we could actually get get consumers to to pay back. So I forget the exact nature, but yeah, it was like one part like a commission upfront for originating the loan, and one part like earned through the performance of the like library. you you had to do that like what is called as a FLD, the first loss default, first guarantee, something like that. Yeah, first loss default guarantees. Yeah, so I think in the early days, it was something to that effect. Yeah, like I think it was like, it wasn't called an FLDG, but it was like understood that you know, we would protect a certain, certain percentage of the book and we would only earn. Yeah, the reason it wasn't an FLDG is because, look, we were not deeply capitalized, right? So if you're if you're saying, hey, whatever, PaySense would put up 5% of uh, FLDG, then you can only have 20x what you're able to commit as the, the book. And that was... Uh, that would that would reduce the appetite for the lender grow. So then I think they were they were, I think this was again to Nirmal's benefit. Uh, he didn't want to kind of like stifle us, and he wanted us to learn uh, and and grow. And so that's I think how it went. Got it. Got it. Okay. And this did not really need like any kind of licenses because you were not lending from your book, so you didn't really need licenses. Yeah. We were just an originator at that point, and then we we passed it forward to IFL. They were the lender. They did the underwriting. We were just kind of operating within their guardrails. It was their underwriting at play. So uh, how did it evolve from then? Like once the jungle money came in, they used one million came in. Then. So then the next part was just I think we 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 had also started to figure out okay you know how to originate. Uh, we had figured out how to kind of use social plus referrals plus other channels very effectively to originate more. We had also figured out how to generate certain signals which we could pass the lender to help them underwrite better. And by this time, our graph had also been built up. Remember the graph I was telling you about for fraud protection? We had also built out a graph where people were connected and we could see 
that this is where birds of a feather do flock together, right? Like a good network is actually, is got a strong signal, positive signal. A network with strong delinquents means there's like, so there's like a cluster of fraud happening, etc. So we were able to kind of pass those signals. And then we brought on like a second lender, right? So I think we brought on Fullerton uh, as the second lender. And then we were able to, and then we were also kind of starting to see that once a consumer borrowed from us and had done all the paperwork and done all the processing, we could also serve them better by A, lowering the rates over time and B, making it more frictionless or processes. But we didn't want to become like hyper sterile, right? Like we didn't want to be viewed as IFL's digital growth strategy. We wanted to kind of make sure that uh, we didn't want them to feel like that we were captive to them. And we didn't want to leave a perception in the market either that they were the only only ones that, that we could serve. So we, we then diversified to Fullerton, opened up more geographies. At this time, we were still very Bombay and we kind of started to open up in other, other parts of India. And the one thing we were quite keen on is ultimately to go acquire our own NBFC or apply for our own NBFC. So we started the work around getting our own NBFC as well. And the idea was we would, we would raise capital for our NBFC and then, and then originate onto self, right? Because A, you get to keep better, we had a percentage of the margins and B, also the high interest rates that we were getting charged by the NBFCs was getting passed on to customers. And I was a bit against that because that just meant that we were always seeking into the the riskier segments and the or the or the segments that really were desperate, right? Like yeah. uh, so, I, I actually wanted to get off of that. And the only way to get off of that was to kind of like have your own NVFC or your own your own capital. So I started to push in the direction. That's a long process. Eventually, I think it didn't quite fructify for various reasons. We had. Uh, eyes on a certain NDFC, but the RBI was not happy with them selling. It didn't quite work out. But then uh, then we kind of continued on the journey the same way. We basically added more lending partners to the background. We were able to negotiate better terms with those lending partners. But yeah, we just kept building this personal loan story and slowly ratcheted it up. And, and meanwhile, while the personal loan story was the, the front, the real asset that was getting built was the graph, right? By by the time it was 2019, we had some 650 million notes connected a few billion times. And that was far more predictive and, and capable of you know, discerning good from bad than any bureau, any alternate data, anything else. And we were able to demonstrate that. We could do like a simple like a, a versus b kind of champion challenger with a bureau or or with with anyone who claimed that they had phenomenal uh, alternate data and we would horse race and we would always win and that was the reason i think we were able to kind of survive where other lending startups did, did quite make it okay how did you build the graph like because i mean you how did you get that data about the relationships between customers because you're not like a social site right so how, how would you so when when a customer would borrow from us one of the requisites was that they would download our patients app and when, when they would have the patients app one of the permissions we would ask them for is our contacts and we would say hey use these contacts to kind of build a network score and, and so when we didn't know much else about, so if I have your contacts, I would just know that these are people in your network. I wouldn't know much else. But then it just so happens that if, if you borrow from us, then you would tell a friend of yours and then they would borrow and they would drop their app. And then 
at least like five other friends of yours will come and do a check. They'll check their credit score, check their limit, check their balance. And then, then you'd get these dense clusters, right? So what would initially start off with a very sparse, unfilled graph very quickly had a fair bit of data that was contributed by the by the ecosystem. And, and therefore, like clusters where there was more default would get a low credit rating and clusters where repayment history was good would get a high credit rating. And so you were able to make better credit decisions and right, got it. Okay. Yeah. And not as simplistic, but yeah, like if you basically, uh, if you were part of a, a cluster where there were a lot of defaults that we've seen in the past, then you would have to really prove above the normal average Joe that you're amazing, right? You could still be a, a white swan amongst black or black swan amongst white, but you would have to really differentiate yourself from that, from the cluster. Otherwise, statistics-wise, you're going to demonstrate the same behaviors as the cluster. And by 2019, what kind of numbers were you doing, like this person? We were doing close to like 100 and something crores, 110 crores maybe per month. Okay. So 2020 is when, like, uh, I guess, PayU did a acquisition, right? Like, That's right. That's right. So, so tell me um, about that journey. It was a, it was a long journey. And, and what started off, like, back in June of... 2019 ultimately was consummated into a transaction in whatever Jan 2020. PU had been looking at other assets as well. I mean, they did have an investment in Zest Money and they, they were looking at acquiring uh, Cap Float at the time. And uh, we were in the mix, right? And I remember this clearly. And, and you just feel like, uh, it's like the, it just, I'm sure this because it's the most odd things that eventually that you're not expecting. So I was, I walked into one of the very famous bankers, investment bankers in, in Mumbai. And, and they were representing the, uh, the seller to pay you at the time. And, and I, and I knew this, but they didn't share this, but I knew this. And then the banker said, Hey, this, this deal is going to happen. And it's really unfortunate because you guys are going to be a, you're going to, guys are going to be collateral damage as a part of the deal because one, happens, your strategic just bought like a very large company and you're going to be left on the sideline. And I remember that it's, uh, I was like, that really punched me in the gut because I was like, and I think he, what he said is absolutely bang on. He's like, if these guys are looking out to uh, purchase someone else, then you as a CEO have not done a good job in explaining why you fit into their world. It's not their job to figure out if you fit, how you fit. It's your job as a CEO to uh, demonstrate that you do fit and how you fit, right? And I was like, man, this is such good advice. Like, I wish I had heard this like a few months earlier. And this deal was going to happen anyway, right? Like, this, this deal was like 99% in, from what I understand from the public press, whatever. It was going to happen. And so all I did was I put, put, put together a simple four slides and I was on vacation. And I called up the CEO of you and I said, hey, I want to walk you just through what we've been up to and how we fit in, in your world. And, and by the way, I'm going to do a fundraise, right? So, I, I mean, I, and because you're on my cap table and I'm doing a fundraise um, and you have certain provisions, you're going to have to, so I did this pitch. I kind of gave them a very clear sense of like where we stood, how we add value, how we make sense. Even if they, and at this time I was assuming that they were going to do that deal. So that it was going to go through. And I said, even in a world where you've done that deal, we still fit in your world, right? This is the, 
think of it as the $300,000 sale that I wanted to do with Kuova. This is what this was. Um, and I was like, we still fit. We still fit in your world and you shouldn't discard us. We're a good asset for you. And fast forward, for whatever reason, the other deal did not happen. But I had just raised capital from Payu. So they had just done full diligence on me. So they were, I would, they knew everything about me, my asset and whatever else. I had just given them this big story. So it was very top of mind for them, for the executive at PayU that, oh, this is what patience is and this is how they fit. And so when that deal didn't happen, I think it was a very obvious second choice. And so then uh, that's how, it, and then six months later we were with you. Yeah. And this was like a pretty massive valuation, like $185 million valuation, right? Yeah, so it was a 185. Yeah, and that's what like most of the investors exited at. I continue to stay on and kind of build. Uh, so I think I keep my stake in in the entity, and that that entity is worth a lot, lot, lot more. Yeah, just is great. Uh, but that's also well, really I have to I I owe it to the pay you guys who have that foresight to let the entrepreneur continue to build on the platform. In a meaningful way. And as part of that deal, we brought in Lazy Pay, the NBFC, and uh, PayU Credit under or PaySense under one umbrella called PayU. And then PayU already had this NBFC, Lazy Pay, or they have yes. it. No, they had one from the from a year prior, but I wanted all the credit assets to come under one umbrella. So that's how we. And this happened what pre pandemic or, or like once pandemic hit? No, no, it's just before. I think we closed our deal in Jan and the pandemic was March. So yeah, by the skin of our teeth. So in 2019, you were doing about 110 crores of disbursement a month. You probably had a limited customer segment because you had only two lending partners. There was no lending happening through your own balance sheet. So tell me what what's like a snapshot of things today, like from there, like what all are the types of customers that you're lending to? What all products do you offer? Is it still only personal loan? Like, like you know, just help me understand the, the business. Yes. So today we stand about at about 560 crores per month. Um, and that includes buy now, pay later, as well as like personal loans. But what we've also started doing is creating a platform or an API approach where we're, we're helping other fintechs and neobanks lend to their consumers, but using our kind of our engine in the background, right? They don't have to build all the intelligence, the tech, the loan management software, bring the capital. They can just participate in the lending. So in some ways, there could be a thousand patients that we could support today through our, through our platform, right? Again, this comes from my early Microsoft days, right? So I always think of platform first. So you start off with an application, but then eventually you become a platform, you let others build on top of you. So that's what we're doing now. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're north of like 1,000, 2,000 crores of lending per month in the next in the next six months because the business is just going. And from a customer segment standpoint, it's very diversified now, right? I think it's, we have customers who are well-banked, tier one CTE, customer who are just looking to us as a convenient outcome because it fits more their 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 type of borrowing, mostly in the BNPL segment. And we also have customers who are like personal loans borrowers, right? And then the good news is we've kind of systematically pushed our, our rates down, right? So we're down all the way down to like 13% for some segments of the customers going all the way to like 22% for the others. But that was 
one of the areas that I wanted to kind of see our NBFC push the pressure down. Although we've been able to accomplish that. See, so, and how many lending partners do you have now? Like in terms of who, who are supplying the funds and how much comes from your own NBFC now? Like what, what, what does that look like? So we do about 50% on book on our own. And of course, we also match our own equity with, with debt from a large set of banks in the background. That's one half of the, of the book. The other half of the book is we do have, I think like four or five NBFCs and a couple of banks that we co-lend with. So we can alternate. We might take 10% and then we might co-lend the other remaining 90% with a bank or with an NBFC. So. There's a pretty wide, I guess, supply side now. And depending on what type of loan, what what region, what customer profile, there's a lot of intelligence in the system to just automatically channel it, whether it goes to on book or it goes off book. There's a pricing engine that also knows how to optimize for the right experience and the right price for the customer. Okay, okay. And like you're still largely like a D2C uh, play or like so you said that you're now looking at fintechs as a source of loan origination. So how much is like your D2C play versus that loan yeah. through fintech, other fintech partners? We're still, I think, 70, 80% D2C. The true fintech partners is still small because we're also looking to understand, right? We don't want to expose ourselves to to risk that we may not otherwise carry on our own book. Through, like easily counterparty risk, etc. So we're just being careful on how we grow that. What is like the key lever for growth that you need to crack? Is it supply of money or is it like building demand, like originating more lender, uh, more borrowers? Like, is it borrowers that you, or, or is it lenders? What do you need? To yeah, it's actually, it's actually neither. It's actually the, the match that's, that's off, right? So today we get somewhere close to 600,000 loan applications a month, right? We do, we do about 300 or so, 300, 250,000, right? And a lot of that is being built. So if I just look at personal loans, uh, in personal loans, we'll see about 3.3 lakhs. So 330,000 applications for credit. And we may actually serve maybe 50,000, right? So there's a, and a, a lot, the vast majority um, of the ones that we don't serve are not because they're not good credit or they're not, uns, they're not, they're not uh, servable. It's just that they just happen to be in looking for a certain product construct that we don't have, right? They might be looking for like a 20-day loan where we don't do 20-day loan. Or they may be looking for like a bullet loan where they say, hey, six months, I won't pay you anything. And then at the end of six months, I'll pay you a big fee and I'll pay you their clients for back. We don't do that. And that's more the case for like business type of loan. So we don't do those, right? So we do EMIs and that doesn't fit for businesses. And the, and the third could just be like geographies, right? So we we only serve customers where we can collect. Uh, and so if we're if you're 100% digital only, then we want to have some sense of comfort in terms of where you are. So that's the other part. Like, so we don't serve all geographies, all corners of India. I think the demand is there. The supply is also there. A lot of the supply goes unutilized. A lot of demand goes unserved because we're not able to match at 100% rate. So probably like expanding the product portfolio, so to say, is like what, what will be like a lever for growth. Product portfolio, underwriting mix, collections presence. I think there's a whole sequence of things that we need to do to just serve more. 
So you built your in-house collections capability. That's right. Why not just outsource it to agencies? Like a few different reasons. I think one is collections is a great way to get a pulse on like how to change your origination mix. And if you don't have anyone in-house driving collections and you don't get a feedback loop that can change your originations and your underwriting mix, that's one. The second is collections is also, I think, is is a necessary component of lending, but at the same time, it often goes wrong, right? Where customers escalate and and customers say, "Hey, I got abused," or "This doesn't, or didn't, 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 this didn't go right," or "This happened," or "That happened," and those those are all missteps. Those are not in our code of conduct or guidelines or whatever. So, if someone is hundred percent on agency, then you can't hold anyone accountable and you can't take action, right? So. This is the reason we actually like to keep collections in-house to the extent possible. But again, you know, given the size of the loan book, it's not, it's not possible for us to hire thousands of people on roll. So we do a hyper where we have all the collection managers on book and we spend time in agencies who ultimately are the ones who are the conduit. So any escalations can get resolved locally uh, with the collections manager who are empowered to solve. So how do you generate 600,000 inquiries a month? Like, what are your customer acquisition channels? What does the funnel look like? Like, what? Yeah. So uh, a lot of it is through through partners, to be, so, to be honest. I think there are a lot of people in a very distributed fashion. You can call them DSAs. Or you can call them online aggregators. Um, they are the primary drivers of acquisition. The second is we've also, over the last few years, built a very large buy now, pay later base, right? So we have about 3 million customers who use our lazy pay buy now, pay later app. And so you, to be honest, we are live with Mexico, uh, but I didn't crack it. I think lazy pay had connected and I just acquired lazy pay. What's another way to get a go into that movie? So yeah, it's a, it's a, I laugh about this just as much because what I came here to start five years ago, I ended up acquiring five years later. So basically... We just ended up buying lazy pay from PayU and making it pay credit. So they are live with like Swiggy and Book My Show and whatever. And that business, and I know that for a fact now, that business, like what I thought back then was like unviable, is unviable by itself. But you have to find it, to combine it with the rest of what we do. And I think then it becomes like a great way to acquire customers and then cross all those customers with the personal. And that is, to be honest, a very large percentage of how we source customers into our personal world as well. The third is through our API. Like the, the pure BNPL where like you pay at the end of the month, that is like a loss leader. But then some of those customers, instead of paying at the end of the month, would want to pay over a three-month installment or something. That's where you uh, make some money on that. Uh, that. Yeah, that's one part. And then some of those customers also will ultimately, because they do this month in, month out, they'll borrow some money. They'll say, hey, I have a expense. I want to buy a used vehicle or something. I want to buy a borrow 60,000 rupees. They'll borrow it, they'll put that on EMI, and then now you make some money. So my last question to you, I know you must be quite tired by now. So I, I do interview a lot of fintech founders, and I, I've spoken to three other founders so far who are all building a platform play where they are saying that the way you can plug into, let's say, Stripe or Razorpay for a payment gateway, you can plug into us for offering credit. So so how do you see that space evolving? Like I, I spoke to the founder of Ugrow, which is like a NBFC own book listed entity. And then there are two startups. There's one company called Hyperface. There's one company called Dero. So they're all building these rails 
which through which you can just integrate and start offering credit. So h- how do you see this market evolving? Yeah. So look, I think uh, there's two two ways. There are three players in credit, right? There are people who distribute credit. Uh, uh, this is your the creds of the world who basically acquire customers with like brand campaigns, credit card payment, whatever. Um, ATM and basically what they do is they and then they kind of cross sell them credit, right? Credit does it with that we have seen a few others and you know there's, 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 that's how that works. Uh, that's interesting. I don't think that works in India at scale because I think you, know, you can earn two percent. Yes, it's risk free, but the cost of acquiring that customer and the cross selling them it just doesn't quite work out. You have to amortize that customer across so many different products that doesn't quite work out. The second, like you mentioned, hyperphase, we have with Mo and a few others. These are like pipes, conduits, rails, intelligence, middle layers, right? So again, middleware in India has never done well. Middleware around the world has done well. Middleware in India has never done well because middleware in India just gets the price compression constantly. Right? Um, no one wants to pay for stuff. Give me a, an example of what you mean by middleware. Uh, what, what would be another... Middleware is basically let's like something which is done well outside India but not in India, like as a concept. Yeah, let's let's take uh, plaid, right? Like uh, a plate, however you want to say it. They are basically a way to connect between in other markets, right? So basically, and they were valued at like whatever four and a half billion dollars, and I think they got bought. Um, but they they truly are like pipes between banks, right? They're middleware, right? Uh, or like Visa, Mastercard uh, would also be like. In me, these are also They have like a consumer facing. Yeah, exactly. Middleware is not well branded, to be honest. Like Visa Mastercard are well branded. Uh, so middleware is not really well branded. It's like NPCI like, in India is like that should be a middleware. Right? So it's it's important, but it's not like consumers don't like identify with it. Right? Uh, so that's so those are middleware software companies, and they basically uh, so someone said, hey, I will I can. I can do OCR scanning for you. I can basically convert uh, printed documents into digital formats that you can do. That would be a middleware company. And year after year, when I write a check to them, I'll be like, hey, can't you do this for a little bit cheaper? Can't you do this for a little bit cheaper? And I will never let you build a very big company on the back of like me paying for it, right? So that's that's typically what happens in middleware companies. So I'll always ask for volume discount or a brand discount or some discount to basically say, eventually I'm only going to pay you 300000 but the value will be for more and more work that you do, right? So that's the second. And the third is people who manufacture credit, right? Like whether that be a Bajaj, KU credit, like any any like reasonably sized bank or in BFC, there you do make money. And the reason you make money is because you also take a lot more risk. You also have a lot more capital. You have the regulation. You have, you basically kind of figured out so many different things that need to go in, go in sync for you to be able to manufacture a credit product for a consumer. Right. And then that product can be distributed by anyone you want and you can pay them their CAC and then they can pull off and then you can monetize the customer over time. So I feel like people who are investing in deep, differentiated manufactured products will survive. People who manufacture commoditized products will not survive because they'll just get like price compressed. So for us as a strategy, we always think about new to credit. We always think about thin file, not because you can price them more inelastically, but because no one else is competing for them. And that's where, like, when we, you know, build all this graph technology and all this underwriting and you have, like, 40 people in data science to basically look at the bureau and give a personal loan, right? Like, that's just such a huge waste. Um, we do all this because we want to serve the people who are not on the bureau or have a very thin trail on the bureau. And so 
I believe that we need to continue to manufacture products that no one else can. And when we do that, we that will subtle the So lending has three pieces, right? So you need to be able to acquire at scale at low cost. So that's where our BNPL, Swiggy, Bookway Show kind of partnerships play a huge role for us. You need to be able to manufacture or underwrite customers in a differentiated way with data that's uniquely yours. That's where our graph and some of our other kind of repayments information or BNPL repayments information is uniquely ours. And the third is you need to have access to very low cost and very deep amounts of capital because ultimately capital is your raw material. And that's where process plays a huge role for us or pay you plays a huge role. And that's what I realized like four years ago, venture capitalists will eventually not be able to win this game, right? Venture capitalists eventually, I mean, today yes, there's tons of dry powder. So they're like just throwing it on uh, as if capital is free, but eventually they're not going to continue to plow billions of dollars into a company as raw material. So that's, that's, I think, how I see, like, this kind of play out. Okay. So you, uh, as an entity, essentially still, like, fundraising from uh, PU, right? Like, and, and what is the valuation you are at if you are at liberty to share? I, I, I'm pretty sure you'll say no, but no harm in asking. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely no harm in asking. And yeah, definitely. It's much higher than where we started off at 185, that's for sure. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books, and drama. Visit thepodium.in, that is T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-M dot I-N for a complete list of all our shows.